0: しかもない is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldren.
2: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldren, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you doing today, my man? I'm great. Absolutely great, Jeff. Yeah. Glad to be
1: here. Got a good one today, I think. You know, we're going to be talking about big Coliseum card. Probably this is the biggest one so far, as far as the talent on it and the matches. Except for one match, and we'll we'll kind of talk briefly about that. But uh, we may end up talking some on the next guest about that first match on this card. Okay, so where are we going today? (laughs) Well, we're going to start with that, like I said, the second Coliseum show of 1976. It's going to be on a Sunday afternoon, February 22nd. This card's got pretty much, it's got everything. It's got a cage match. It has a six-man Texas death tag match. It's got a World's Ladies Championship match. It's got a Mid-American title match. Seven matches in all on this Coliseum card. This one, like I just said a second ago, I think is one of the best so far of all the Coliseum shows. And we're going to look, too, obviously, at the television the day before on Saturday, February 21st. And uh, that television program, obviously, is going to promote this Coliseum show. And then we'll talk a little bit uh, about some of the other cities that are run in the third week of February. We'll talk about the crowds, size of the crowds, box office results, payoffs, things that we normally cover. And we're also going to talk about creating a third weekly city in the state of Virginia, West Virginia, about 220 miles out of Knoxville. So we've got a lot of stuff in this particular show, and then we're going to finish up today with another great learning tree. And this one is a three-part question. And the first one is, did I have a personal formula about when to finish up a russer? Or then this is like associated questions. Or was it as simple as houses being down? Or houses being down, maybe not an indication of workers needing to be changed, but maybe just the angles needing to be changed. So uh, this question's a good one for people that are interested in how booking was done. This is probably uh, going to uh, give them a real good inside view of uh, what that was all about. So I'm going to go right on into it, Jeff, of the uh, Tremendous Coliseum show, February twenty second, 1976. Open a match on that card was George Goulas versus Jerry Myatt. That's the match <laughs> that I wasn't too pleased with. And we'll probably end up talking about that more next week than this week. The second match was a great return tag match from the Sunday before. The Sunday before, the two Welch brothers, Jack and Roy Lee Welch, the sons of Lester Welch, who was my grandfather's brother's youngest br- youngest brother. So they had wrestled a 20-minute time limit the uh, Sunday before. And this time, it's a no-time limit between these two teams. Obviously, the old Oriental monster himself, Tor Tanaka, is going to be on this card, and he's taking on Charlie Cook, another great talent. There's the World's Ladies Tag match, I mean, the title match uh, champion, Moolah, faces against one of the best young lady wrestlers, Joyce Grable. It was really good. And then there's an Mid American Championship match. The champion is Dick Steinborn. He's making his Southeastern debut that day on that card. And, uh, He's wrestling against uh, Jimmy Golden. So he's got his hands full, and they're going to have a phenomenal match. Then in the six-man tag, there's going to be a Texas death match rules. is going to be Norvell Austin, Big Butch Malone, and Homer O'Dell in the ring against the three Fullers, my, myself, Robert, and my dad, Buddy Fuller. So, uh, then the last match is that cage match that we talked about at the very opening here. That's going to be Don Carson against Ron Wright. And we've had all kinds of different matches between these two. It's down now to the cage, and this is going to be a wild cage match. New Southeastern tag belts were on display the afternoon of this show in the lobby of the Coliseum, which was really an expansive area and a beautiful place to display the belts. And uh, the announcer is going to be announcing after every match that there's going to be a tournament for these tag belts the following Sunday, which is going to be back in Chilhali Park. So let's break down the TV show from the day before, before the Knoxville card the following day on Sunday. The first match on the TV was the Superstars, and they had been on the week before against Tommy Rich and Rocky Smith, a good team. Superstars were burning hot at this point, especially after the Ron Wright angle with Don Carson, where they had busted Don, Ron Wright's eye. Uh, the studio audience really got into their matches, these guys, because both of them had a unique ability to banner with the crowd, which heels, a lot of heels were really, really good at. And uh, because this is the TV studio, it makes that bannering with the crowd even more effective. Every once in a while, look over there, and you get somebody that says something that's uh, really loud, and you go, shut up! And... You know, I mean, they just were doing that heel thing constantly during their entire tag match. Uh, And it really, really worked in the television studio. The Welch brothers, Jack and Roy, came to the set for less during this match, during this superstar match. And uh, they talked about all kinds of things during this match. Uh, They they talked about the fantastic wrestling ability of these two mass wrestlers, obviously. Uh, They had already wrestled them once. And they were very impressed with how good they were. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about who, and Les kept saying, who do you think these guys are? And, you know, they, they had their own ideas. Les had a few ideas of his own who they were. Uh, the Welch boys discussed the entire angle with Ron Wright, the superstars, and Don Carson. And they asked Les, you know, they had heard before they arrived what had happened, and they asked Les if it was true that the mask guys really busted Ron Wright's, eye right on the desk they were sitting at right then. He said, did they, they they really put Ron right on this desk and bust his eye? And Les said, yes, they definitely did. And uh, then he said, uh, that was a horrible thing, and he promised it was never going to happen again on his set, that anybody was going to get their eye busted, or their head busted, anything else busted. The boys talked about their 20-minute time limit draw the Sunday before, and how proud they were to be the only team that had not been just outright beaten by the superstars. And that's pretty good. Uh, The superstars have been there about seven, eight weeks at this point. They were a tremendous team. They'd beaten everybody easily, and they hadn't beaten the Welch boys. So the superstars won their match. It was a little more than 10 minutes, and they won it with their usual double submission, the Boston Crabs. Both of them had the Boston Crabs. And they beat two good guys. They had Tommy Rich and Rocky Smith and those Crabs. Then they motioned to the Welches to come into the ring. <laughs> They're still sitting at the desk. It is the same way the Welches had done the week before on TV. The week before, Jack and Roy had been on TV, and they had motioned for the superstars to come in. So Jack and Roy, once they got a motion from the superstars, they didn't hesitate. I mean, they left that set in a flash, and they just went sliding underneath that bottom rope. And uh, as soon as they slid under the bottom rope, the superstars slid out under the bottom rope on the opposite side of the ring. The crowd loved it, obviously. The fact that the masked man had to run from the two young guys. Uh, So superstars weren't gone very long Though They're uh, coming back for the interview. So uh, once they came back to the set, they brought along their good buddy, Don Carson. After the commercial break, uh, they tore into the young Welcher punks that had managed the last 20 minutes with them the Sunday before. And they, they really pointed to the fact they loved the fact that this one was a no-time-limit cause and they could do as much damage to these young punks as they wanted to do before they beat them. And they put that emphasis on before we beat them. Uh, Don Carson took over from there, and the crowd, as always, hating Don. They They tried to drain him out, drown him out, man. I mean, they were just screaming really loud over his interview. And he was really on fire in Southeastern at this point. Uh, he started claiming first about losing the TV trophy the week before to Ron Wright. And then he started bragging about how easy it was going to be to use his black glove, his old peanut butter, as he called it, in any way he wanted to the next afternoon because this one was going to be in the steel cage. No disqualification, obviously, no time limit, no rules, basically. So it goes till somebody gets beat. And uh, he said no one had been able to collect his second $500 offer. He had offered again. He had sent. Uh, he gone to the paper. He had put. had uh, placed another ad for $500 if you could bust Ron Wright's other eye. And uh, he and during his interview, he said basically, I hereby withdraw the offer because now he says nobody done it, and I'm going to do it myself. You know, I've got a better opportunity than anybody. I got my peanut butter. He's in the steel cage. And I'm on the other eye. So uh you couldn't hear yourself think in the studio. I mean the crowd was really, really into it, and you couldn't hear part of what he was even saying. It was you could hear it in the control room, but I don't know if the people in the studio could hear it at all. Second match of the day was Charlie Cook versus Tony Peters. Uh, Tony Peters is a big guy. He's been on TV many, many times. And Charlie made him look small, basically. He beat him in less than five minutes. Jimmy Golden joined Charlie at the set for the interview right after the match. And Jimmy talked about his shot the next afternoon in the Coliseum for the prestigious Mid-American title of the Unpredictable. And I mean, Dick Steinborn had a fantastic style of wrestling. He was a tremendous wrestler, and he liked to wrestle most of the match. But at some point in that match, he was going to do something that was unexpected, and it usually led to a victory for him. So Jimmy had to, had to take on him. It's like somebody had given him a scouting report on Steinborn, and Jimmy said, I heard that this guy's very unpredictable, and I'll be keeping a close eye on him. And he, he knew Steinborn could go either way. He knew his reputation, and uh, that was important for Jimmy. I mean, he needed that because Steinborn is a veteran at this point. He started wrestling when he was 18 years old, and now he's in his 30s, and he is in his prime. He's really, really a tremendous wrestler. And uh, so he promised fans that uh, Jimmy did that they're going to be watching a great match the next afternoon and that he had plans to come away with the Mid-American Championship belt. Charlie Cook talked about his pro football background and the size of the men he was accustomed to dealing with. And he brought that up, obviously, because he's dealing with Tora Tanaka the next afternoon. And that's a pretty big man for sure. It watched that block-busting display. He said, uh, "Where Tanaka came in on the first day and broke that four-inch block with his head." <laughs> and Charlie said, "I got a pretty hard head myself, you know." And he goes, uh, "I don't know if I could. Uh, my my head would bust his head, but I don't believe he's going to be able to knock me out like he did that block." The uh, studio crowd they cheered both Jimmy and Charlie. They, in fact, they loved those two guys. And uh, it really showed during the course of this interview. Very popular personality profile was next. It had the ladies world champion who had been the champion for quite some time by this point. And she was a very salty lady and feared by most lady wrestlers was the fabulous Moolah. It was a great profile. One of the best, if not she was, Moolah herself was, if not the one of the best, she was the very best lady wrestler, maybe of all time. Uh, she was also a very intelligent person and, a, and did a great interview. Uh, Les got all out of her that he could. Even asked her how many le- great lady stars she had trained. And she had trained many of them. It was really amazing. Even asked her if she had ever defended her world championship on TV. And <laughs> she... And she kind of looked like, well, you know, nobody's ever asked me a question. And she said, uh, no. And, uh, you know, and he he kind of then put her on the spot. You know, he said, uh, well, would you be interested in defending it here on Southeastern? And, and, and so she goes, she was kind of taken aback. She was a little amazed and she she like hesitated. And, he, and then she finally said, uh, yeah, you know, she said, I've heard great things around the country about this television program here. And, uh, you know, uh, I'd, I'd be pleased to be on your show here. Les on on, on Southeastern Wrestling. And, uh, you know, Les was like, he was like blown away, but he didn't stop. He said, well, how about next week? And uh, so Bill Kincaid sitting up with me in the control room. And when Les hit her with that one, <laughs> Bill never looked at me, but he said, That a boy, Les. (laughs) He was like, you know, that television production crew was the best I ever worked with in all of my wrestling years. Uh, They were so in tune with the wrestling show. They wanted everything to be great, and they wanted to have these great matches. So when Les kind of backed her in the corner and she agreed to defend in her World Ladies Championship on television the following Saturday, it was Kincaid that made that remark. But I'll bet you the camera guys down there on the floor were thinking the same thing. I know the guys in the control room were probably thinking the same thing. The following Saturday was going to be the last week of the February rating period. And, uh, you know, it was, it just worked out perfectly. And, you know, we never talked about this, Les and I. Les never asked her any questions before the profile. And this worked out great because this happened to be the last week of the four-week rating period. And we're gonna get a World Ladies Championship match on TV. So, you know, it was it was fabulous. Fit perfectly with what was going on. Next match on the crowd, uh, it really, you know, get got the crowd pumped. Uh, and uh, after Phil Rainey introduced Jerry Might, uh, Jimmy Golden appeared in the studio. Jimmy is really over at this point. He has he's lost to Naka, he's lost to some big stars, Carson, but he's still is really, really has a great backing of the crowd. And uh, Jimmy hit the ring, man, and, I mean, he was ready to go. And so was the crowd. I mean, they popped just seeing him come into the studio. The Mid-American champion, Dick Steinborn, that I talked about earlier, he, he joined Les at the set for this match because he's wrestling Jimmy. And uh, he brought his Mid-American belt. He uh, put it out on the front of the desk. And uh, you know, he said, "I'm proudly defending my title against uh, this kid up here. He didn't he never seen golden wrestle." Said against that kid up there, and he so Les welcomed him, and he started uh, asking him questions. And he started with uh, Dick Steinborn's famous father. Dick had a great personality, and he was happy to talk. Briefly, he wanted to talk about himself, but you could tell he was happy to talk about his father, who was named Milo Milo Steinborn. One of the strongest men in the history, not just of wrestling in the history, period. And Les also complimented Dick on his great wrestling ability and his own skills. Dick barely had time to mention Jimmy Golden, his opponent, the next day before Jimmy finished off Myatt. There was quick, I can tell you that. And uh, he did. He did another beautiful drop kick from the top rope, and it was like I said, it was Steinborn's first time to ever see Jimmy wrestle. Uh, the crowd loved the high flying drop kick, man. Uh, and Steinborn was absolutely blown away. And, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting upstairs listening to it. And he says to Les, uh, as soon as he sees the drop kick, he says, Did you see the power in that drop kick? You know, and Les loved the opportunity like this to show off, you know, what we were doing on our television program that no one else in all of wrestling was doing. So he turned to Dick and asked, uh, before he ran the replay, he said, how would you like to see that in slow motion? And Steinborn was just, he was really blown away. He asked, are you kidding? He goes, you guys have slow motion? And uh, Les says, yeah. And he called for Kincaid to replay it back. And Steinborn talked through the entire replay. He, Les usually talked through these replays, but Steinborn, he was so into it. He says, and, you, and he was talking about the match tomorrow. He was like, he wasn't even aware that he was on the air and he said he's, one of his statements was, I got to watch this kid tomorrow, <laughs> you know, like, wow. And then he kept as it says the replay went on and those feet hit that my in the face, man, and sent him the, you know, through the ropes. It was like, so he was just kept repeating. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> as the replay went on. So I think that moment kind of brought Dick Steinborn to Southeastern wrestling. For a long run, a few weeks, a few months later, he's going to come into the territory and he's going to stay. And I believe it was his first impression that day watching Golden Russell and watching that instant replay and the things that we were doing on the television show that made him want to come to Southeastern. Robert, our dad, and I, we joined Les at the set before he went to the break. We had, We shook hands with Steinborn on the way leaving the set. And we came on the set. I knew Dickie well. He had taken a lot of pictures of me when I first started wrestling in 1971 in Florida. And uh, we were great friends. So, uh, you know, it was was nice to see Dick. And he was just a tremendous talent. So we're scheduled uh, for the last match of the show on this particular show. We're going to be wrestling for a chance at winning the Tennessee Tag Championship. So Les surprised us with a short video of three of us against a great Australian tag team, George Barnes, Bill Dundee, and Jerry Gray. It's a match from Memphis that was recorded about a year earlier. And it was a wild match. And it was in front of more than 11,000 fans in the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. Uh, We were going to be in a much more dangerous six-man tag the next day because it's going to have Texas death match rules. But the Australians. Six man tag ended up with our hands raised at the end of the end of the video. And uh, it happened to have been the first time ever that those three Aussies had lost ever as a team. After Les closed the segment, we stayed for the live interview immediately after they ran the commercial. We talked about the difference between the tag that had just seen and, uh, and the one that they were going to be fans were going to be seeing tomorrow afternoon. Uh, tomorrow's tag was going to be obviously a Texas death match and that match could last all afternoon. I mean, and, and it really could, and it really did last a heck of a long time, way past 30 minutes. Uh, we explained the rules that call for a 32nd rest period after every pin and then a 10 second count to get to your feet. First one of the six of us that could not make it to their feet lost the match for their team, obviously. He talked about the cruel nature of this type of match, and and uh, then Les brought up the animosity between the two teams. You know, Rob and I didn't care for uh, Austin and uh, and Malone, and Homer had had his leg broken by my dad in Georgia years earlier. So uh, it, it, we were headed into a, a tough match, uh, obviously, and it was going to be it was going to be really a wild one. We talked about the Coliseum, too, and how loud that building was. And uh, when we did that, I think Rob said, he encouraged the fans. He said, you know, fans, when y'all come tomorrow, let's light up that building. You know, light it up for us. Well, heck, the studio crowd, they picked it up right then, and they lit up the studio for us. They they cheered as loud as they could, uh, just getting ready for the next afternoon. Final match of the day, obviously, was eagerly awaited. And then you could tell that by the crowd. Uh, Everyone was on their feet when Rob and I were introduced. And they booed like crazy when Norval Austin and Butch Malone entered the studio wearing their Tennessee tag belts and followed by old Homer Odell strutting with his his, uh, black motorcycle jacket on and his his general helmet on. And, you know, he was was really feeling it. Uh, This tag match went well over 20 minutes on TV. Pretty darn unusual. And it ended with both Homer got involved. And when Homer got involved, dad was not out there in the studio. He came and got in the ring and got involved as well. Both teams, obviously, we got disqualified. So, And then it took about another five minutes to get the heels to leave the studio. They wanted to continue the fight. The crowd just loved it. They were absolutely crazy, especially the last 15 minutes of the match and all of that that happened after the match was over. So, Homer and his three men, Austin, Malone, and Tor Tanaka, they're going to the set for the final interview of the program. Homer started with Tanaka's match against Charlie Cook and uh, talked about what Tanaka was going to do to Charlie Cook and uh, and how he had heard Cook mention the fact that he saw Tanaka break that block with his head, and he said, I'm going to tell him tomorrow to break Charlie Cook's head. <laughs> you know, the... Then he dug into the Fullers, you know, and how much he hated us and how our dad had broken his leg in Georgia many years before and how his team was happy about this being a Texas death match because uh, he they could apply as much punishment as they wanted to inflict. And they really were going to emphasize the old man, they called him, that old man Fuller that, you know, got no business being in a six-man tag and he certainly got no business being in the Texas bet match tag. So uh, they really focused on Dad. That uh, we're we're going to go after the old man. And the more Homer spouted his diatribe, uh, the louder the studio became. Uh, before he finished his two minute rant, you couldn't hear what he was saying either. They drowned him out just like they had Don Carson on the first interview. Les closed the show, obviously reminding the fans of the brand new world ladies championship match that was just scheduled on the program and the personality profile. And he also showed off those new Southeastern tag belts that were going to be awarded to the first ever Southeastern tag champions in a big tournament the following Sunday after this show, the Coliseum show, on Sunday, February 29th. He closed the show to a standing ovation, man, with the studio audience there. They had really, really enjoyed the show that day. It had been a spectacular
2: television program. Okay, this would be a good place to take a break, Ron, and talk about part two of Super Studcast number 26, which is now available. It is a very special edition of 30 great stories from the Tennessee Stud, most never heard on any Studcast or Super stud cast. We're talking naked wrestlers, ribs from the road, going back to the 40s and 50s, almost two hours of great wrestling history available now. Let's go to David Summers.
0: Part 1 of Super Studcast number 26 with Jeff Van Camp's recollections of being the horrifying Lord Humongous is truly amazing. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast he made the Stud stable in 1984, one of the most remarkable groups of wrestlers ever assembled. Part 2 is now available and is really special. For the first time ever, the Tennessee Stud does what he does best, telling 30 historic wrestling stories from the 1930s up to present day, most all of which he has never told before. Part two alone is almost two hours of vintage wrestling history. Take the ride back in time from his grandfather to Jack Briscoe. You've never heard anything like this. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. Saddle up for something very special.
2: Okay, Ron, before we go on, i got a couple quick questions for you. One to throw at you. The other day I was looking on Twitter and someone had posted a copy of Ric Flair's uh, wrestling license from the St. Louis Wrestling Club going back to, I don't know, late 70s, early 80s. So, quick question for you. Uh, as a wrestler, how many states required you to have a wrestling license?
1: Just about all of them, <laughs> especially in the South. I don't think Florida. Yeah, I don't remember Florida being... Uh, Commission state, which had an athletic commission, but uh, Georgia had it, Tennessee had it, Mississippi had it, Alabama had it, Arkansas had it, Missouri obviously had it. I had a St. Louis wrestling license myself, had to, and uh, guys had to get them. If you, what about when you went up to the Garden in New York? Uh, yes, I think they had licenses up there. I'm pretty sure, but for some reason, I don't remember actually having to get the license because I was only there on one show. I believe, uh, Vince senior, uh, who was running the business back in those days, uh, kind of wrangled it around and I never really got that license, but, uh, yeah, everywhere. It seemed like almost every state in the country had
2: athletic commissions and they required you to have a wrestling license. Okay. Next question. So you've wrestled in, uh, geez, Florida, wrestled pretty much everywhere, Ron. So I got to thinking of all the places you've been to. Started off, you know, Florida, places like the, uh, you know, the arena in Saint Petersburg, uh, Miami Beach Convention Center, St. Louis up in the Kiel, uh, and of course, Knoxville Civic Center. What would, Madison Square Garden? What was your favorite arena to ever work in as you look back on your career?
1: Well, actually, you know, I, I got to say Madison Square Garden. I mean, uh, you know, it it might not have been the most beautiful building. But to me, it was the most historic building I ever wrestled in. Uh, it, it had seen everything. Uh, you know, uh, the greatest concerts, the greatest professional boxing, uh, world championships, wrestling world championships, you know, basketball games. Uh, it did it, it just uh, there's something about that building that I, I remember when uh, Vince Sr. called me on the phone and invited me to come to New York and wrestle in the garden. I was like a big kid when I hung the phone up. I was jumping around, you know, like, wow, I'm going to work the garden. You know, I mean, I'd have to say probably Madison Square Garden. Just so much history there, huh? Oh, tremendous history there. And, uh, you know, so many things happened to that building and so many tremendous stars had had been in that building before. Uh, It's just a great place to go. And I was lucky the night I was there. It was a sellout. You know, I think twenty thousand, a little more than twenty uh, uh, thousand. It, it's a it's an awesome sight. Now I have been in. I actually wrestled. Uh, I, I'm gonna give you a second one here. I wrestled in the uh, sumo hall in Tokyo, and it seated over twenty five thousand people, and there was no chairs or seats. Everybody sat on the floor, and that was a pretty spectacular sight because you had the The building just went forever. That was an experience too, and a really beautiful. When you got in the ring and you did that three sixty, which uh, you know, I'm, I made sure I did in Madison Square Garden. Make sure you slowly see the whole building, you know, uh,
2: and uh, did same thing in Sumo Hall. That was that was an experience too. Okay, last question before we go on, Ron. Uh, so you talked about uh, the upcoming Texas Death Match uh, six man tag. As a promoter, did you have an ultimate blow off match? You know, some territories. They, they, you know, Steel Cage, Lights Out match, uh, you got your Texas Death match. Uh, what f- For you as a promoter, what did you consider the ultimate blow-off match for a feud?
1: Usually it was a Steel Cage match, and that's what we've got in this particular night here in the Coliseum, uh, but we had had a few Lights Out matches already, a couple of them. Uh, Don Carson and I believe maybe Ron Wright were in a Lights Out match already in the Coliseum. We did end up with some Lights Out matches, but To me, you can't hardly get any better than uh, setting up that big cage and having two guys with no way to get out of that sucker. And uh, it just, uh, that's pretty much the ultimate. Okay, Ron, let's continue with the show now. Where are we going next? Well, let's talk about the results of this Coliseum event. And uh, the first match was one that I kind of mentioned that I wasn't real happy about. And uh, we're going to discuss it a little bit at the end of the show. But that was George Goulas, and he defeated Tony Peters. Uh, and once, you know, I think uh, it depends on how long this show is going to, um, how much time I'm going to have, whether I can get into that today, or I have I want to spend some time on this first match uh, in the Coliseum. And now I just want to go on and give you everything else that happened. And maybe if we have time, we'll get to it. Second match of the afternoon, it's going to more than make up for the first match. Let's put it that way. The superstars are against Jack and Roy Lee Welch. And this match tore the house down. This is the one that started out as a 20 minute the Sunday before. And this time it's no time limit. They went well over 30 minutes. The crowd just loved it. The superstars won, going over strong with their double Boston Crab finish that they had become famous for in the Southeast. And it was not good news for Jack and Roy that they lost. And it was even worse news. I I was sad to say. For more reasons than that, I had to inform them that uh, at the end, after the match was over, that that was going to be their last match for quite a while in Knoxville. I just didn't have room for two heel tag teams, uh, nor two babyface tag teams, in such a small territory as I had at that time. I was trying to keep cards to 10, 12 guys. And when you've got two tags, you're going to run into those 16, 18-man cards And it's hard for guys to make the kind of money they needed to make. So it hurt me to give them a notice. I mean, it really hurt me. You know, their family. They were family, you know. And they were great workers, both those guys. And, uh, you know, their daddy, Lester, I'd flown with him in airplanes in Florida for years all over the Caribbean. And, uh, you know, I felt bad about it. Uh, But they had grown up in wrestling, just like I had, just like all the Welch's had. And, uh, and they saw the big picture. Uh, they weren't angry with me. They understood it was just business. It was the most difficult notice I ever gave anyone. In fact, it bothered me so bad, it was the last notice I ever gave anybody. After that, I always had someone in my family or someone within the company or an assistant booker to me give notices to guys. I would say, hey, you need to give so-and-so a notice. I just didn't like it, and, and I really got a bad taste in my mouth that first night because that's my cousins, and having to say, I can't use you anymore. It was really, really difficult. But I'm going to bring Roy Lee back in, in the following year, in 1977, and uh, he's going to become not only a part of Southeastern in Knoxville, and he's going to stay there for a couple of years. He's actually then going to become a partner with me in Southeastern uh, Pensacola later on, and he's going to remain a partner until that company was sold. Uh, His brother, Jack, is going to wrestle maybe for another year, and then he's going to give up wrestling, and he's going to move, of all places, to Pensacola, and he still lives there today. In fact, both Jack and Roy live in Pensacola, Florida, today. The third match on this card, Tor Tanaka, managed by, obviously, General Homer O'Dell, and it's against the old Pittsburgh Steeler, Charlie Cook. Uh, before we get to the finish in this one, though, I want to talk about the crowd sound in that Coliseum. Uh, you know, even though the crowd size was not that much larger than what we were drawing in Chilhowee Park at this point, the difference in the sounds of the two buildings were just amazing. It was totally different in the Coliseum. I don't know whether it was the acoustics because it was such a large building or the fact that the fans were just in a big space building and they were getting into it more than they were in that smaller building. But, uh, the sound was absolutely fantastic there. So, you know, I watched these three guys when they went to the ring, Charlie went to the ring, what an ovation he got. You just, the, the sound was just phenomenal. It's like, gosh, this is just the third match. And they're already sounds like, you know, and then when Homer and Tanaka came through the big giant curtain at the back of the Coliseum, it seemed like the roof came off that building. Uh, we had about 5,000. We were close to 5,000 on this Coliseum show for the biggest one yet. Uh, but it it sounded like 15,000 to me. I mean, and I've been in crowds that were 35,000. So, you know, I had an idea of what crowds boys was. But, boy, this building was really great for it. It gave me goosebumps, man. <laughs> just just those guys walking in the third match to the ring. So in the coming years, the the crowds are going to get huge in the Coliseum. The, the, the building is going to be full to the rafters uh, week after week after week, record, record, every, all the time, consistently full. Uh, and the sound is – then when it gets that many people in that building, it's indescribable what it sounds like. They had a great match, uh, Charlie Cook and uh, Tor Tanaka. And uh, Charlie lost a match. Tanaka beat him. And Charlie lost in the middle of the ring, but he still got over, you know, and, and that's what it's all about as a booker. You, you got to figure a finish that's going to take one of your guys like that that's kind of mid-card, and you don't want to hurt him, uh, but you can't put him over a big star like Tanaka. But, uh, you know, he he he's a great worker, and he managed to uh, keep himself over even though he lost in the middle of the ring. That works for not just me, but it also worked for Charlie Cook as well. Fourth match, Ladies' World Championship. One, It was one of the champions, the fabulous, smoothest first matches in the Coliseum. And it wasn't going to be her last, I can tell you that. As Southeastern grew, as the company grows, I'm going to use these triple World Championship cards. I like to do it. I had the NWA heavyweight World Championship match, the NWA Junior heavyweight world championship match and the ladies world championship match, all on the same card. And then championship matches underneath those as time goes by. Mula was a real badass man and had tremendous matches with many of her girls that she trained, but she had her absolute best matches with Joyce Grable. And it was like watching men in the ring. I mean, they just beat the heck out of each other it's like wow these they they're working like men uh, you know and moola she knew how to get heat and she knew how to get herself over so she beat Grable in the middle of the ring uh you know and the, and the crowd would have paid big money to see the same darn match again i'm sure of that and moola's going to come back next saturday and uh, she's going to work a world championship match for me on television uh, i had a real respect for Lillian ellison was her real name The next match was a really great one, though one of the guys that's in the match, it's his first appearance in Knoxville. They've never seen him before. That's the Mid-American champion, Dick Steinborn. And Steinborn, in my opinion, one of the great workers of all time. And he was the son of one of the stars of the sport from way back in my granddad's day. His name was Milo Steinborn. Milo was Dick Steinborn's father, and Milo was recognized as one of the most powerful humans on Earth in his day. You know, I'd seen pictures. This is amazing. You you might think, if you look up, you'll find this. I'm pretty sure if you Google Milo Steinborn, you will see pictures of Milo Steinborn getting underneath the elephants and picking them up with all four of their legs off the ground. Elephants, I'm talking about. I mean, he was just unbelievably strong. Uh, So I'd borrowed Dickie, basically, uh, from Jerry Jarrett. He was working for Jerry Jarrett, so I'm on the Memphis side of the state. And uh, I got him for this Coliseum show. But Dickie fell in love that weekend. with He loved that TV show. I could see it and hear it in his voice when he saw we had the instant replay and slow-mo and all that stuff. And uh, I wasn't able to keep him at that point. But before the year is over, he's going to become a star there. And I'm darn glad to get him. He's one of the greatest in the world. Uh, Dick's working with another one of the greatest workers in the world. And I'm going to have to pat him on the back, even though I'm related to him. And that's Jimmy Golden. Uh, to me, this was probably the best match of the afternoon. I watched all of them. And this one, God, it was fantastic. Uh, the The crowd's reaction was just Unbelievable. Considering that 95% of this match was pure wrestling, uh, it was exactly what I wanted. I wanted this type of match on every Coliseum show, especially in these early days when all these new fans are coming. And all those new fans that night had never been to a live wrestling match. They got to witness uh, what the name was on the marquee out front. They got to witness a real wrestling match. From the beginning of the match where they shook hands, which, you know, that was a lost art toward the back, oh, as it progressed, as wrestling progressed into the eighties. But there were a lot of babyface matches in which guys shook hands before the matches. They not only shook hands before the match and for more than 30 minutes they wrestled, they exchanged holes and chain wrestle themselves into the hearts of that crowd. I mean, that crowd got so into this wrestling match. I just loved it. It just made me feel fantastic to just to have booked it and to be there and be able to watch it. I mean, move after move, followed by handshakes from both of them, led to everybody in the building on their feet by the end of this match. Steinborn wins the match, and he wins it by throwing the only punch of the entire match. And the crowd erupted when it happened. I mean, it just shocked them. They were just sure that this guy's a great uh, baby face and him and Jimmy are going to be friends and buddies. And pow, he popped him, man, covered him. They counted him out. It was unbelievable. He got more heat with one punch than any heel, I believe, in the entire night with 20 or 30 punches. He was one of only the first of many guys that, that shook their hands, I couldn't wait. When they went back to the dressing room, I was the first one there to shake their hands. And I told them both, God, guys, that was an absolutely unbelievable match. And there was a line of wrestlers behind me that said the same thing to them. Uh, This match went a long way, in my opinion, to building Southeastern the territory. And and I have no doubt about it. Uh, uh, And we filmed that match, thank God. And we're going to show a little bit of that. Because it was classic wrestling. The the afternoon had been terrific by this point. I mean, except basically for the first match. and, And now we were coming to the matches that the fans really wanted to see. By this time in the show, fans were electric. I mean, they had seen some tremendous matches. They were just on fire. Everything anyone did from then on got over. So just coming out of the ring with my father. Coming to the ring was just so exciting for me and Rob and him. The building, you know, just, it was fantastic, the sound in there. And then when Homer and Butch and and, and, and Norvell came and and started, you know, gosh, the the booze were just like, uh, they they could hear it at the University of Tennessee, three miles away. I'm sure they could hear him booing in that building. It was crazy. Uh, The match was so easy. Crowd popped on everything, like I said. By the time we had already traded, maybe 15 falls. This is a Texas death match. 15 guys had been counted out 15 times. And every one of them got that 30-second rest period. And then when the referee started to count, they kept getting to their feet. It came to a point to where the fans in the building, you could kind of sense it. They had no idea now when it's going to end, how it's going to end. And is it going to end? You know I mean? That's perfect for a Texas death match. That's what you want. You want those fans on the edge of their seat, and they just go, geez, this is just unbelievable. And uh, the longer it goes, the better it gets. So during most of most of that, you couldn't hear yourself think the crowd was so loud. At the end, we took three straight falls on Homer, and he appeared to be finished. And he was struggling that third time to get to his feet. And the referee's counting And Tanaka shows up from out of nowhere at ringside. Now, all three of us are standing inside the ring, and Austin and Malone are standing inside the ring. They're screaming and trying to get Homer to make it to his feet. And they're smart. They attack the three of us. And when that happened, the referee is up to about a count of eight. Homer's not up. He's not going to get up. But the referee is drawn to our little battle behind Homer, who is laying there. And all of a sudden, Tanaka jumps up in the ring. He jerks him up off the mat. He takes him to the corner and throws his arms over the corner of the ring. And he gets back out of the ring. So when the ref turns around, he sees Homer standing. He figures that Homer's gotten up himself. He's holding the ropes in the corner. And the referee signals the match to continue. So Rob and I, we're fighting with Austin and Malone. And uh, the ref's with us trying to stop us. And uh, and he gets knocked down. The ref goes down. And my dad sees Homer hanging in the corner there. And he goes over. He climbs up on the second rope. And I mean, he's rifling him with some real potatoes. <laughs> I'm sure Homer was. Uh, yeah, I could hear Homer screaming. You know, they was he's getting killed by the old man. And uh, so Homer's still hanging in the corner. So uh, uh, Tanaka's still at ringside. And he just jumps in the ring behind Dad. He hits him with a chop in the back. And then he hits him with one of those chops in the head. And uh, Dad goes down, obviously. And uh, and then Tanaka throws Homer, who's down as well, on top of Dad. Austin and Malone, uh, they, took, they both shot Rob out of the ring, onto the floor. The referee is still down. And Austin grabbed me in a full Nelson. Malone pulled something out of his tights. And he threw a big punch at me, and I ducked it. Malone hit Austin with whatever he had in his hand, and Austin went down. He's out. Uh, when the ref got back on his feet, I covered Austin. So, you know, and, and then he looked over. I'm on top of Austin on one side of the ring, and my and Homer's on top of my dad on the other side of the ring. So the ref, what, what's he going to do? He just kind of knelt down between the two piles of us, two different Piles of guys, and he counted counted both teams out and counted everybody out, you know, and uh, when he did then they they started the thirty second rest period, and the ref went over and told the announcer, which was really smart on his part, you know now they're both we both teams have been counted out at this point. He said the first man that gets to his feet is the winner of this match. And, oh, that stood the building. They were already on their feet. Dad really, it just rocked them then. You know, they were like, come on, come on, come on. They were trying to get Dad up there. And, uh, you know, and Dad made it up. Uh, Austin, that had been nailed by, by his own partner, uh, he was just about to get to his feet, but he collapsed just before Dad got to his feet. And the ref rang the bell. He raised our hands. Uh, Dad collapsed. I mean, he was blown up. He, it had been a long, hard match. And and we were trying to get him on his feet again. And Tanaka and Homer Malone are still in the ring. And Austin is trying to get his faculties about him. And they jump us. And now it's just two of us in there. And now, now Tanaka's in the ring too. So they start pounding on us. And then Austin gets pounding on us too. Now we've got four on just me and Rob. And they're giving Dad a little bit of it too. The bell kept ringing, obviously, like it should have. the match is over, and finally Tanaka he fooled Nelson's me. He comes to me, focuses on me, and Malone goes back in and gets his gimmick out again, and uh he's going to hit me, and I duck again and this time Malone hits the big man, Tanaka, uh wow, I mean t- Tanaka did not even budge it was like it was like he didn't get touched. And uh, the crowd exploded. They were like, oh, boy, man, we saw this a few weeks back. Tanaka and Tanaka went for Malone. And uh, Malone jumped out to the floor, and he headed to the dressing room. And uh, out and chasing him out of there was Tanaka and Austin and Homer O'Dell, all three of them, chased him right out of the building. Ref raised our hands again, and it was another big pop. So the last match began after the new cage had been set up. Uh, Around the ring, Carson entered the ring with his southeastern belt on, even though it wasn't a championship match. He was escorted to the ring by the superstars who actually got in the cage with him. Uh, It was probably the loudest booze of the night because this threesome, man, they just had phenomenal heat at this point. Ron Wright, he arrived at the ring, and what an ovation he got, man. Uh, But he refused, not a dummy, Ron. He refused to enter the cage until the superstars got out of there. And it took them a while to leave. They they took their time. They didn't want to leave. And the ref just finally said, you got to go. And forced them out. Uh, They finally, they were booed when they got out. And he waited, Ron Wright waited till they not got just past the the end of the ringside section until they went through the black curtain at the back of the building. And then he entered the ring. And uh, he was about to get introduced. And Carson was just laying for him. And he attacked him on the way in. And when you get into a cage, you it's, it's pretty hard. You know, you, you've got to, you go through the door and then you've got to bend really low to get underneath the ropes. And you've got the cage right there close to the ropes. And it was perfect time to attack. And that's what Car- Carson's plan was obviously. And, uh, he loaded the glove right away. And, uh, right away he nailed Ron and Ron was started bleeding early on in this cage match. And, uh, Carson tried to pin him several times in the first 10 minutes of that match, and uh, Ron Wright kicked out. About 10 minutes in, and and the match had been all Carson, Ron Wright kind of started his first comeback of the entire match. Fans had been waiting on it. They'd been burning for it. And uh, he did it by hurting Carson's glove. He got Carson down, and he began stomping his glove and on his supposedly bad head. And then he started slamming his hand into the turnbuckles and all the corners. And Carson was trying to fight back, but every time he threw a punch, he had to sell it. It was like, oh, I can't hit him anymore. Right? So his peanut butter was of no use to him at that point. You know. And then the fans realized that Ron Wright was really in control. So when old Ron got to that point, you know, he 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 worked him great. God, Ron Wright was such a tremendous worker. He did exactly what those old hillbilly fans that that had been coming to see him for years knew he was going to do, and he went into his tights, and out he brought that chisel, man. And I'm telling you, that crowd went absolutely crazy. And so did Carson. Carson started running like a kid, like a scared child, and he was trying to climb out of the cage so that Wright couldn't hit him with that chisel. And uh, Wright just kept grabbing him by the trunks and pulling him down. And Carson ran to the other side of the ring, and Wright, go pull him down. Wright just kept slowly torturing him. It was funny. The fans finally figured out, oh, man, he's he's going to get him, but he's going to take his time doing it. And when he hit him finally with that chisel, I mean, blood spurted across that ring. It was unbelievable. The war was really on then. Fans were delirious in the stands. Those that were in the stands, some of them from upstairs had already come downstairs to the main floor. You know, and uh, Carson's face was just, you know, he he was bloody. Wright was bloody. He Wright had been bloody. Now Carson is more bloody than Wright because that chisel would down sure do it to you. So Ron went for several pins on Carson, and uh, Carson held on, and he kept kicking out. And then finally, Ron Wright pinned him, and, uh, you know, referee raised Ron's hand, you know, and, uh, the ref had the key that was always the custom in a cage match is the referee locked the cage and then he put the key in his pocket. So Ron Wright got his hand raised, but before the rep could even open the door, Carson nailed Ron Wright from behind. And then he grabbed the referee and he threw him face first into the cage Well, actually it's one of the few times I've seen a referee bleed and the referee was bleeding. And then Carson searched the ref's pockets and he found the key (laughs) and he unlocked the door to the cage. And when he did, he waved toward the back of the Coliseum and guess who comes his two boys, the superstars. And when they got in the ring, Carson went back to the door and locked it back again. Now there are three of them in there with Ron Wright, who's down and bleeding. It was one of those things that, um, you could see it happening. You could see the heat uh, that this is serious. And uh, and uh, the fans began to leave their seats, especially in the second level and the third level. And uh, the, cra- the floor of the Coliseum began to really fill up. Now, luckily, I had a great group of policemen in that building, and they saw instantly what was about to happen. Uh, they did their best to keep the people outside uh, the, the roped-off area around the ring, you know, and the baby faces started coming down and they were going to try to get into the cage to help Ron. And as they would climb up on the cage, the two superstars would bang their hands and knock them off onto the floor again. And then uh, it just left Carson there beating the hell out of right the entire time. It it got hot. I mean, you could tell, uh, you know, I had seen this stuff before and, uh, you know, Carson smart. He realized that they had taken the heat to a dangerous level, you know, And it was time to unlock that door. And this time, the three of them were going to be the ones that were going to be lucky to escape. And when they left that cage, there were so many people around it that the police pushed the crowd back enough for them to get the cage door open. And when Carson and the superstars came out of that cage door, the police surrounded them as best they could. And they started working toward the back of the Coliseum. And it was a mass of people. It must have been two thousand people in a circle around that those bodies, those guys, as they fought their way basically to the back of the Coliseum. So it had been a wild and a wonderful afternoon for Southeast historic wrestling afternoon for Southeastern Wrestling. It'd been the type of event that everyone left there that night, or uh, that afternoon, and it was just about night by the time it was all over. Uh and and they all went away, I'm sure, talking about what an amazing amazing bunch of matches that they had seen southeastern was on the road that's basically is what was going on at that point
2: okay ron we got another great stud cast going on here but i think because we might be running a little short of time it is time for us to once again go into the old learning tree and we maybe can finish the rest of the coliseum show next week
1: okay uh, i think that's probably a good idea you know this has been a great program and uh you know there's been a lot in it so uh well, let's just jump right into it. Today's learning tree comes from a gentleman named John Crow. And uh, he asked uh, three associated questions. I mentioned them at the early part of the program, but they're kind of associated questions. And they, one of them was, do you, do you have a personal formula? Did you have personal formula about when it was time to finish up a worker? Or is it as simple as houses were being down? Or, or is houses being down not a true indication? of the workers needing to be changed, but maybe just the angle. This is a great group of questions here, and and this is going to lead me in a, I can't answer it before setting it up. So I want to talk about the elements of this question. The I think the best way to answer this question is to break down the major elements that make this question, and then just how these elements had to work together. So let's start with the wrestlers. If not born into a wrestling family, as I was, new wrestlers, had to find someone who was a wrestler to train them. That was the normal way it was done. And those that were trained were usually a product of their training, and they were either headed for stardom, middle of the card, or or becoming a job boy if they're lucky. And some of these trainees, they're going to improve quickly and develop the tremendous desire to learn, and others are going to put forth very little effort and have very little desire, and they're soon going to be gone from the sport, to be quite honest with you. So the talent of a wrestler, even the great ones, needed to be supported and guided by one of the most crucial people in the wrestling business. And that person is the booker. Now, bookers were never trained. They were most often a wrestler that had the ability to spot talent when he saw it and had a creative mind that could produce hundreds of different ideas. And uh, he had a way of pairing wrestlers together and a fashion of doing it That excited the audience. I mean, you know, that was basically a booker's job. Bookers didn't always have to be wrestlers, but rarely was someone capable of being a great booker if he had not had some experience in the ring. You know, that just hardly ever happened. But I think there were probably a few cases that it did. Uh, When you gained that ring experience and knowledge, though, a booker then had to also understand the maybe the most important element of it the psychology of the crowd he had to think like uh, in a way in which he he could take people where he wanted to basically he had to instinctively feel what the audience was into and or not into you know he had to assess why they were having that particular reaction he had to be able to recognize which guys were were a match for each other uh, that fans would get into uh, had to watch every match, damn sure, watch every match on the card every night in order to make those assessments of who to put together and who are the fans going to get to. If he was good, he instantly knew when he saw a winning combination. That was just the beginning of this long process. Bookers were very rarely young. I mean, their skills were developed over time. And with vast experience, it took a long time to become a good booker. It was a process of making the wrong choice uh, more often than the right one when he was young. And every booker did it. I mean, you would say, this is the guy. These two are guys. Oh, these are perfect. Let's let's do this. Let's do that. And then it all fall apart and you go, darn, I I was totally wrong. So as time went by, these bookers got a distinct feel for what they were doing and see it. And then something beautiful began to occur in towns sellouts that's what began to occur when these bookers got it all together and they had that great talent things are going to happen at some point every booker began to insert his own ideas he had to extend the number of matches and the types of matches between these two pairings of guys that he had put together you know he had to figure out how do i get more matches what type of matches do i want to take them to here and you know These ideas, they had to first, they had to, first of all, they had to make sense, not only to himself and also the wrestlers, because they got to try to make it get over. But more importantly, the most important people, he had to get the sense of what they wanted was the crowd in that building. So these ideas are what I call an angle. And, you know, so that's where most bookers went wrong. Their angles made no sense. Those The guys that couldn't book, the angles made no sense to the crowd, uh, much less to the wrestlers who had to get them over. (laughs) You know, I mean, the wrestlers were the ones that had to make these things happen, you know. And even great workers couldn't overcome a bad angle. I mean, if you had a bad angle, the two best workers in the world aren't going to be able to make it work. You know, so sometimes bookers had angles suggested by the talent. And that's what happened for me. I'm a young booker in Knoxville, but just started as as an owner. And I have Don Carson and Ron Wright and the superstars come to me with this angle of let's bust Ron Wright's eye. Uh, Let's do this thing, right? And all four of these guys came to me together, and they suggested the whole damn thing to me. And Ron Wright, he was willing to do the hard way. The superstars are capable of busting his eye, obviously. And Carson could do the setup with the interviews and he'd he'd take and make the trips to the newspapers. So there's a young guy who I needed that type of help. And there's four talented guys who come to me and say, let's do this, Ron. What do you think? Well, gosh, I'd have to be an idiot to go. No, we don't want to do that. I mean, I could tell, wow, this is unbelievable. It's going to rock this territory, Uh, territories. They were the strongest. The ones that were the strongest had that perfect combination of great talent and that great booker at the same time. That's the critical part of it. You can have great talent and your booker's not good, it ain't gonna happen. You can have a great booker and he's got no talent, it ain't gonna happen. But when it goes right and when that happens, then what you have is asses in every seat of your building every night. And when that happens you ride that, like a surfer, <laughs> riding a giant wave for as long as possible. And if you lose that wave, uh, your booker, he had, to be, he had to create another giant wave, and hopefully your wrestlers and the entire territory could catch that next wave. And uh, great bookers could set up that next wave, and they could put you there, and, uh, and they could keep those territories just cranking those big crowds. Uh, wrestlers like figures on a chessboard in a way, you know. They got moved around by a booker until there was a victory, until he won the game. You know, I think that's about where we are now. In, in this gentleman's question, uh, now we've kind of built up to how I answer, how I can answer his question. The question was, did you have a personal formula for when it was time to finish a worker up? Well, that decision was usually made by the booker. Uh, in my case. I was that guy for many years. Uh, That was always a tough thing for me. Uh, I hated to let guys go. I hated to to finish guys up. I hated to give a notice. And I already talked about it in the program here. Uh, And usually I had an assistant booker. I had somebody else that I I would get to give the notice uh, to other wrestlers. In southeastern Pensacola, that guy was Bob Armstrong, you know, so... And Bob, you know, Bob Bob didn't it didn't bother Bob like it bothered me. So I think every booker had his own time frame for moving talent. In southeastern Pensacola, it was once a year. My brother and I switched to booking job every other year. He had his crew one year, and I was responsible for putting together my crew the next year. It was what I had in mind when I bought southeastern Pensacola in nineteen seventy eight Gulf Coast Wrestling, turned it into Southeastern. I still had Knoxville at that time. And the plans were to operate both of those territories as separate territories. My idea when I wanted to get that second territory is wrestlers would work the Knoxville end in the mountains one year with the same booker and then go down south to Pensacola. And the guys in Pensacola would come with their booker and leave the beach and come to the mountains for a year. Every year when you move guys and the booker from one territory to the other, there was a jump in business when we did that. Every time we changed territories and sent the guys north and the other guys south, there was a big jump in business. No matter how good business was, it jumped amazingly. It also allowed me to create super shows, occasionally in both territories, when I could bring in stars from the northern end to wrestle in Mobile, Alabama, as an example. These guys are already over. They've just been gone for a while. It made these superstar shows that I put together even more powerful. That process allowed me and all bookers to keep the same great talent longer. It seemed that about one year was the best time to move guys. For me, that was the time frame. Fans loved to see them come back. Business boomed again when they returned. It was amazing. So the answer to Mr. Crow's first question here, I guess, is, My personal formula for moving talent was about one year, but uh, we didn't finish most guys up like most guys did. They just went to the other end of the other territory. So the War of 1979 in Knoxville changed all of that. Obviously, it put an end to my plans that probably would have gone for many, many years and been hugely successful. And we'll be getting to that in the future, the War of 79 in Knoxville. So let's go to the second question, which was whether finishing wrestlers up was simply because business was down. Well, thankfully, we never encountered that problem. Uh, our business never went down. But if business got down too much in anybody's territory, it wasn't the wrestlers that you had to give the notice to. They were going to give you the notice <laughs> if they weren't making money. They were going to come tell you, "Hey, look, I need to go somewhere else." And as I said here, you know, if business was down. For long, it wasn't the talent's fault, but it was the Booker's fault. We didn't have that kind of horrible experience. Business was strong in both territories until nineteen seventy nine and the problem in nineteen seventy nine that killed us was that it wasn't had didn't have anything to do with booking or talent. It was because another wrestling company took some of our talent and tried to run in against us in our own territory so uh The final part of your question, I think, Mr. Crow, is uh, if business was down and the workers didn't need to be changed, what about the angles? Well, you know, we've already discussed. The angles came from the booker. And if the angles weren't good and well thought out, if the wrestlers didn't believe in the angles, if the fans didn't show up in the arena for them, it was always went back to the booker. So basically, you know, in essence, Mr. Crow, if, if things weren't going well in your territory, you kept your wrestlers
2: and you fired your booker. Okay, Ron, as we start to wrap things up tonight, uh, let's just remind everybody on Facebook, you could simply like Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, and you will automatically become friends with a legend. Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Both parts one and two of the Super Stud Cast Number 26 are now available. Part one is Jeff Van Kim, the Lord Humongous, and part two is 30 great stories from the road with a Tennessee stud, almost two hours by itself of wrestling history. You can get that at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. Ron, where are we going next week? Well, we're going to finish today's show.
1: I mean, I apologize to fans. Uh, this, was, this turned out to be a little more than what I expected. But we're going to cover the size of that Coliseum crowd. We're going to talk about the gross house, the money, the payoffs for that show, and uh, and the other towns for the week. And we're also going to cover the huge Southeastern Tag Team Tournament that's going to take place uh, that next Sunday afternoon back in Joe Park. Park. Uh, Southeastern Wrestling TV is going to be uh, going into West Virginia. For the first time, we're moving into another state. And uh, I'm going to do a very special learning treat. I'm going to next week, uh, it's for myself. And I say that because I got a very valuable lesson from the first match of this Coliseum show that we have talked about today. And uh, basically, I'm going to get a lesson under my own learning tree next week. <laughs> uh, I really learned a heck of a lot from uh, the mistake I made by booking the first match on this Coliseum card.
2: Okay, so as we begin to go for the final go-home, on behalf of the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller and our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, I am Jeff Bowdern, and until next week, when the ride continues.
0: Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers, saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.